Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Lead Pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. We're glad for you to be here. I hope you're doing well. I hope uh, your summer has kind of kicked off. I, I, I've talked with a couple of people who uh, their summer kicked off with um, their, their HVAC is not working. And uh, for you, I say, ooh, it breaks my heart. Sorry for that. Um, and uh, praying that the Lord will restore that for you. Yesterday, I watched um, a couple of videos on YouTube of building implosions. You ever seen a building be imploded? You know, these engineers are able to take these high-rise apartment complexes, these, these high-rise office buildings, these massive constructs, and uh, using, actually, and in, in sometimes very small amounts of dynamite, are able to strategically drop those buildings where they stand, almost in the footprint of their foundation, just, just drop them. And it's incredible um, when the general public knows it's about to happen. People show up by the thousands to watch a building fall like that. And, and it really, it, it, it's quite incredible. It's quite incredible. Try saying that three times fast. Just go, no, I'm kidding. But it's, it's a really great work of engineering. Uh, just the minds that are able to do that precisely blow, blow up a structure uh, so that it, it just lands where it's supposed to. Now, not quite as spectacular is when a human life implodes. And human lives do that. Human lives implode all the time. If you've never had that personal experience, I imagine you've seen one. Uh, maybe been a, a, a witness to someone you love who, whose life imploded. You know, we, we've seen people that we know, that we love, that we've respected. Maybe just somebody that you heard about. Their, their lives implode and just fall to the ground. Careers are dismantled. Ministries torn apart. Families just demolished. Lives devastated through this implosion of a human life. And normally, as with a building, there's lots of rubble. There's just lots of debris in that field of debris from after an implosion. And it often immediately looks like nothing could ever be done with this. It's just too messy. It's too painful. It would take too long for restoration to come. And such was an encounter that we look at today. We've been in this series looking at first encounters with the resurrected Lord really since Easter. And in John chapter 21, we're going to look today at a great implosion, a life that imploded, the life of the Apostle Peter. One of my favorite statements that I've ever heard about the Apostle Peter is that the Apostle Peter had peppermint socks. Do you know why that's said that he had peppermint socks? Because he liked to put his foot in his mouth so much. Um, anybody out there got a peppermint sock, you know, you like to suck on from time to time? Um, I, I found myself feasting on a peppermint sock from time to time. But Peter, in this passage from uh, John chapter 21, uh, he 
kind of like these buildings that fall. He, he, he demolished. But now here's one of the, the beautiful things about some of the videos I watched yesterday. There were some before and after pics. And so there would be this building and then the rubble. And then um, the next thing you saw was what had replaced it. And oftentimes what ended up replacing uh, all of that rubble was this fully restored facility um, being used for an even greater purpose than the former space had been used for. And so that's the truth in what we're going to see today is the restorative journey of Peter uh, after this great implosion. So if you have your Bibles open to John chapter 21, we're going to start reading in verse 15. We'll backtrack a little bit later, but I want to just start reading in verse 15. John 21. When they, and they're speaking of the disciples here, had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter responded to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, this is Jesus, feed my lambs. And then he, Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because Jesus had said the third time to him, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Verse 18, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And then the scripture interprets itself here. This, Jesus said, he said, to show what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. And after saying this, Jesus said to him, follow me. This is the word of the Lord. Now, I want you to notice something that, that happens before, just a little bit before this. Um, Jesus has gone to Galilee. The disciples had gone ahead of him to Galilee, uh, back around the, the sea. It was their, kind of their region, their, 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 their digs, if you would, where they grew up and where they lived their lives. And they were out on the lake fishing again. You can go back and read about all that, verses 1 through 14 later today if you want to. But Jesus comes up to them. They're out fishing again. And Jesus, once again, causes them to catch a miraculous, just catch a, a fish. And then this time Jesus does something that he didn't do the last time. We kind of see the same scenario playing out. This time Jesus has prepared breakfast for them. Can you imagine having Chef Jesus prepare breakfast for you? Wouldn't that be awesome to, to just show up and Jesus has got, you know, breakfast over an open fire with you? This is what they come to. They, they, they come to this. He has breakfast waiting. And then look at uh, verse 9 of John 21. It says, when they got on land, they saw a charcoal fire. That phrase is important. A charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Now, the reason I, I want to point out the charcoal fire is because there are only two places in all of the Gospels where that phrase is used. Both of them are used by the Apostle John. And I believe that Jesus intentionally created this charcoal fire for a purpose to fully engage all of Peter's senses 
in what was about to take place next, this moment of restoration of the Apostle Peter. Now, if we were to flip back just a few weeks earlier, Peter can be found standing around another charcoal fire. John records this in John chapter 18, starting in verse 17. If you want to look up on the screen, it's going to come up. It says, the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now, the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. He's at this this charcoal fire. Now, here's the context of that John 18. Jesus has been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Peter, along with all the other disciples, had abandoned him. They, They had scattered. But Peter followed at a distance. And Peter now is right outside this place where Jesus is being held captive. Peter may even be able to see inside and see what's going on with Jesus, how Jesus is being brutalized by the temple guards. And now, while he's there standing around this charcoal fire, Peter is first confronted by a little girl who asked him, you're you're one of his followers, aren't you? And Peter says, "I, I am not. And then two additional times around this charcoal fire, Peter denies knowing Jesus. Now, I don't, I don't know that there was a Peter, I mean a, a, a disciple, closer to Jesus than Peter. I, just in, in relationship. Some would argue maybe the Apostle John, and I, I could understand that argument. But Peter was very close relationally to his Lord Jesus. And this is one of the reasons this, this moment here and some other moments from Peter's life that I think Peter is very relatable to so many of us. So many of us are able to relate to Peter because we too often, you know, have our own peppermint socks. We, we put our, our feet in our mouth quite, quite often. And P- Peter is one of those people that maybe you're like Peter, maybe you've done this before, where, where you've looked at an action that somebody else has done and you have said, I would never do that. I, I would never do anything like that. But Peter does. Sometimes later, he does. Sometimes later, we do that. And that's, that, that's why we relate to Peter, because like Peter, we, we've all failed. We've all failed to carry out what we believed about ourselves. And you may recall, it's the same Peter. He had boldly, just hours before what we read about in John 18, just hours before, this same Peter had loudly proclaimed that he would never deny Jesus. He, he, he said, I would never do that. At, at this, this event that we call the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, Jesus and his disciples, you, you remember, were sharing this meal together. Jesus tells them all, in just a little bit, fellas, you're all going to desert me. You're all going to abandon me and deny me. And I want you to look, at, Matthew records this, Matthew 26 records Peter's response to Jesus' declaration. Peter answered Jesus saying, though they all, he's talking about those other guys at the table, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Never. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. All the other disciples said the same thing. People, uh, you know, Peter I think looked at these other disciples and said, Jesus, yeah, I could see these guys doing it. 
yeah, I know them. They're weak of heart. They don't have any courage. None of them have walked on the water with you. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm that guy. I could see them denying you. Not me. Not me. I'll even go, I'll, I'll die for you. And hours later, standing around this charcoal fire, Peter has denied Jesus three times. Now, if you make, if you make a mistake once, people might have some sympathy on you, forgive you. You make a mistake twice, maybe a little more. But you do it three times back to back to back to back in a short period of time, people are going to have a hard time, for, you know, forgiving you. You're not going to get a lot, of, a lot of sympathy, especially if you had been as brash and as arrogant and as foot in the mouth as Peter had been. There would be less an inclination for people to forgive you. And, and let me just say on a side note here for a moment. Those, those denials of Peter may be a bit stronger than just, no, I didn't know him. You know, if you go over to Mark's gospel, and, and many scholars believe that, see, Mark wasn't one of the, the disciples there with Jesus. Many, many uh, scholars believe that Mark that his primary source for what he wrote in his gospel was the apostle Peter. That one of his primary sources was Peter. And so Peter may have reported this to Mark himself. But in Mark chapter 14 verse 71, we read this in the gospel. It says, but he, and he's talking about Peter. And this is in the context of him denying Jesus. He began to evoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. He cursed and said, I don't know this man. Now, a couple of the commentaries that I read said that the language that's used here is a little difficult to determine whether, as the ESV translated it, that he cursed on himself, he was bringing a curse down on his own head, or whether he cursed on Jesus. That it's, it's a little difficult to translate, and there are different translators translate it differently. Now, in the Middle Eastern culture, this is a culture, even today, that can be a strong shame and, and honor culture. And so, if you really wanted to distance yourself somebody, from somebody and declare that you have nothing to do with them, if you want to disown them, you would probably curse that person, not just yourself. You wouldn't just say, if I'm ever seen with this person in public, God strike me dead. If you really wanted to separate yourself, you would ask for a curse to come upon them. That's kind of like taking, that's a next level curse. And so, some interpreters have said, you know, right here, it may have been that what Peter was doing was cursing the Lord Jesus himself. Regardless, it was a very adamant denial that he even knew Jesus. And so, back to John 21, we, we come full circle and Peter has gone back to Galilee. He's gone back to his, his region where he grew up, his neighborhood, if you would. And he's gone back to his life before Christ. In verse 3 of John chapter 21, Jesus said to some of the disciples, I mean, Peter said to some of Jesus' disciples, he said to them, I'm going fishing. Now, I don't know how you read that, but I, I think in this, in this state of shame that Peter was in, he had denied Jesus. I, I think he was at a point of not being able to see how his life could be restored. And so he heads back to his life before Christ, before he, he met Jesus. And friends, there are times in our own lives when we get wayward, when we kind of 
come apart at the seams. Maybe when your life has imploded and you, you begin to look back and just want to run. This is what Peter did. He just went back to what was familiar, what he thought he might be able to succeed at since he had been such a miserable failure at following Jesus. It was in that moment that Jesus showed up. Right there in that moment when all hope was lost for Peter, Jesus stepped in to that moment. And he calls out to Peter and the other disciples in the boat, asks them that question that all fishermen love when they've not caught anything. Don't you, if you've ever gone fishing, don't you love it when somebody says, how many, how many you caught? Fishermen hate that question. Okay? They had caught nothing. Jesus said, put your net on the other side. And they, had, they got this great catch. And then Jesus tells them, come. Verse 12, John 21 come, have breakfast. Come, let's, let's dine together. And they get there. Peter, Peter's the first one to, the, to, you know, to, to Denny's that morning. He's the first one to, to breakfast. And he, he sits there with Jesus and he sees this charcoal fire. And I really wonder what that moment was like. What was that first moment face to face with Jesus by this charcoal fire. What was that like for Peter? Now imagine for the other guys, it was great. It was this, they had, they had worked all night. They were probably tired and hungry and wet and cold. And this was a great opportunity to have their, their bodies rejuvenated. But could you imagine even more the fellowship? The fellowship of breakfast with Jesus. That would just be so, so sweet. And it's in the context of that moment that Jesus takes Peter aside. And he asks Jesus the greatest question that can ever be asked of any human being. And it's one we all need to wrestle with. And graduates, it's one I would encourage you to reflect deeply on over and over again. You've been asked a lot of great questions throughout the course of your educational pursuits. But the greatest question that could ever be asked or answered is to hear Jesus say to you, do you love me? Do you love me? And so I want to read this again. Look back at John 21, verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And I'm just convinced that that, that question was like a javelin just thrown to the heart of Peter. I think that's the way it landed on him because this question gets right to the heart of the matter. And, and I, I pray that before we're done, you'll be able to see how Jesus repeating this question is actually for the purpose of restoration, not for the purpose of shame, not for the purpose of pushing Peter down or away. But Jesus uses this question, do you love me, as the greatest tool of restoration. But to really get at what Jesus is asking Peter, I want to quickly run through what he's not asking Peter. Okay, so here's the first thing that he's not asking Peter. He's not asking Peter, hey, Peter, do you believe my doctrine? 
Peter, do you believe believe my teachings? He's not asking Peter to make a theological proclamation at this point. He's asking Peter, "Do do you love me? Now, I've met people, and I'm sure if you've been in the community of faith long enough, you've met people who could, you know, they, they could split theological hairs with the best of them. But they're cantankerous and grumpy and mean-spirited. There's no love of Jesus flowing from them. Now, if you know me, you know I'm not saying that doctrine doesn't matter. That, that, that we should just forget about it and throw it out. In fact, if you love Jesus, his teachings will matter to you. His words, you'll want to cling. The more deeply in love with him you grow, the more you want to cling to his words. But he's not asking Peter about a theological declaration. He's also not asking Peter about repentance at this point. He's not asking Peter, hey, Peter, have you repented? He's not asking is it this repentant heart thing. See, Jesus knows that when you fall in love with him, you want to repent. You want to experience the full measure of his love, so you will want to walk away from anything that detracts you from that love. You'll, you'll want to turn away from that. But that's not what Jesus asked Peter in this moment. Did you repent? Jesus also doesn't say, say to Simon Peter, Peter, do you have faith in me? He's not asking Peter for a great public profession of faith. Now, should we have faith? Yeah, you can't, the Bible says you can't please God without having faith. And in fact, the apostle Peter had made one of the first and one of the greatest public professions of faith ever about who Jesus was. If you jump over, it's not going to come up, but in Matthew 16, this was where Peter made that Jesus had been asking the disciples, who do men say that I am? Then he looked at him and said, let's get personal. Who do you say that I am? And Peter declared, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Man, just great public profession. But that's not what Jesus was after. He asked him, do you love me? See, Jesus didn't ask Peter about his faith because he knows that if you love him, you will put your trust in him. Jesus also didn't ask Peter how well he'd been doing at keeping his commandments. He, he wasn't doing an obedience checkup. Now, Jesus had said and taught Peter that if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That it's a byproduct of love. That without loving Jesus, you won't have the strength to keep his commandments. If you love him, that will, that will flow. The other thing that I don't see Jesus asking Peter here, he, he's not asking Peter uh, about his ministry performance. This was not a ministry evaluation. He wasn't, you know, saying Peter, you know, he wasn't going back and saying that walking on water thing wasn't bad, but how have you done since then? He, he wasn't doing that kind of thing. Now, remember, Peter had done some pretty incredible performing kinds of things, but Jesus wasn't asking him about that. Peter had also been privileged to experience the transformative work of Jesus. He had, he had been taken into moments that many of the other disciples hadn't. Peter was one of the witnesses to the transfiguration. He had seen Jesus in his heavenly glory. Few had seen that. 
But Peter got that experience. Few had been invited into the Garden of Gethsemane to see Jesus wrestle in prayer, asking the Father to let this cup pass until he fell asleep. But Peter had, he had been invited into these incredible growth opportunities, spiritual opportunities, all kinds of divine revelations had been given to Peter. And some of you have been given incredible biblical insights. Some of you have been exposed to incredible teachings and, and have heard the gospel proclaimed in, in, in beautiful ways. Some of you have had visions of experience. You, the Lord has come to you personally and given you a vision of his beauty and his glory and his grace. Some of you have been recipients of miraculous work of God, a healing touch. Some of you have, have been a, a witness to someone being healed miraculously by, by God. But Jesus wasn't asking Peter, how, did, how was he managing all of the privileges that he had, been, he had been given? He was asking him one question. Peter, do you love me? It's that question that's a restorative question coming from the mouth of Jesus. Now, sometimes in the mouth of human beings, it's not restorative. It's condemning. It's shaming. But coming from Jesus, it's coming with a heart to restore Jesus, uh, or restore Peter. And I want you to look at some of the details of the question, okay, with me, this restorative question. First, I want you to see this. The restorative question of G that Jesus asked is very personal. It's very, very personal. Do you? Do you? He asked Peter, but he's asking you today. Do you? You just fill your name and it, start, it starts out, Peter, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you love me? You can fill your name in that blank and then listen to Jesus ask you that question, do you love me? He wants all of us to hear that question coming to us because there are places in our own lives that Jesus wants to restore us. And here's the deal about this one. Because it's personal, only you can answer this. Now, sometimes as parents, maybe even as grandparents, we try to answer it for our kids because we desperately want them to love Jesus. We try to answer it for our grandkids. We can't. It has to be personal. It has to be dealt with. Each person has to deal with this. And the other thing that we often try to do is when, when Jesus comes to us in a way that is intimate and personal, and at this point it's challenging to Peter, we try to deflect the question. You ever, you ever kind of ask somebody a tough question and they try to deflect it, you know, kind of strategically push it off a little bit? Peter, Peter tries to do that. Look at verse uh, 21 and 22. When Jesus is asking Peter the question, um, do you love me? At some point, the apostle John had started following them a little closer. And Peter sees this out of the corner of his eye, catches John getting a little close to this conversation. And he looks at Jesus and says, well, what about him? What about him? Does he have to love you? Is this just me? What's going on? What about this guy? Did you notice Jesus' response? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Don't, don't, don't try to deflect with Jesus. 
Because that's the question he's going to come back with. What is that to you? What difference does that make? I'm asking you the question. Do you love me? It's a personal question that Jesus poses. And I, I believe he poses it over and over again in our lives. Throughout our, our journey with him. Do, do we love him? It's personal. Secondly, second thing that this question is, it's It's pressing. It is a very pressing question. It is going to press against the most important aspects of Peter's life. It's going to cut through everything that's superficial. It's going to get right to the heart of the matter. Do you love? Do you love? Peter had heard Jesus on multiple occasions teach that everything in the Bible— now, remember, th that time the Bible was the Old Testament. But Jesus taught that everything in the Bible, all of the law, the first five books of the Bible, all of the prophets could be summed up in one phrase. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, and all of your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Love God and love others. Peter had heard Jesus declare that you could sum up the entire Old Testament with that word. And now that word is coming to him. Peter, do you love? Do you encompass all of the teachings of, of God in your life? Do you, do you love? And see, for this question to lead into restoration after a life uh, that, that has imploded, it has to press into deep places in our souls. It can't be a superficial question if it's going to restore. It's got to dig down deep to where shame lies in the dark places and hiddenness to root that stuff out. It's got to be pressing. Third thing that this question is, is it is pertinent. It is pertinent. It's personal. It's pressing and it's pertinent. Jesus asked, do you love me? Do you love me? Not not Peter, are you capable of loving something? But are, do you love me? It's very specific. And Jesus, I think, qualified it the first time he asked it. Do you remember that? He asked it three times, but the first time he asked it, he asked, do you love me more than these? Now, we don't know what these were. It doesn't tell us that Jesus pointed to the boat, you know, that his fishing boat, his career, his life had been built around. It doesn't say that uh, he pointed to the, the catch of 153 fish that they almost couldn't bring in. It doesn't tell us whether he pointed to the other disciples. Do you love me more than these guys? It just said, do you love me more than these? And that's a question. That's part of the question that Jesus poses because anytime he asks something like this, it, it's got to dig down deep into our own lives. Now, one of the things that I trust is that anytime we gather, the Holy Spirit is present and, and, and is at work. And I believe that and I trust in it because God's Word tells me that where two or more gathered in His name, there He is. And for, for me, what that means is the Holy Spirit is working more powerfully than when I'm by myself, even if I'm worshiping privately. 
that the Holy Spirit's at work. And so I trust that the Holy Spirit's at work in, in these moments. And that one of the things he wants to do right now is to point out to you what are these in your life. When Jesus poses the question to you, do you love me more than these, that the Holy Spirit's got to poke us to say, how about this in your life? How about this in your life? How about, how about this in your life? So for you, does that word these mean your career pursuits? Does, does these mean your comfort or your hobbies or your family or your financial security or your status? Friends, Jesus knows that in order to restore our souls, that question, do you love me, has to press into the pertinent areas of our life, our actual life, right where we live, work, and play. Because in some of those areas, we're deceived, and we love these more than we love him. And that has to be asked. And that's why Jesus, in this moment, is patient with Peter. He asks him, do you love me more than these? Then he steps back. He says, feed my sheep. Then he asks him the next time. He doesn't use these in it. He said, do you love me? And then, do you love me? Now, Jesus is right in the middle of Peter's brokenness. And he's meeting Peter. And this is what this great restorative question does. Jesus meets us in our restoration right where we are. And he does this with Peter. Now, our English Bibles, when translating this question has a great, great struggle to point to the flavor and the depth of Jesus' questions. Because the English language only has one word for love. We say, I love my spouse and I love fudge. I love my kids or I love, you know, a scoop of vanilla ice cream or chocolate or whatever. We we use the same word to denote really two different expressions in our hearts. We know it's different, but we don't have the word for it. So we just use the same word. But the Greek language that the New Testament was written from, and we get our translations from, had many words for love. In, in the Bible, in the, the Greek New Testament, there were three. There were eros, that was a sexual love. There was phileo, that was a brotherly love. There was agape, which is this unconditional kind of love always is the word that's used to describe the love that God has for us. And so it's, it's a much more powerful phrase. So when Jesus is asking these questions, the first two questions that Jesus asks when he says, do you love me? He uses the, the Greek word agapao. He, he asked Peter, do you love me ultimately? Do you love me condition, unconditionally? Do you love me with a love that is above any other kind of love? Do you agapao me? And both times Peter answers Jesus. He answers Jesus the same way. But he doesn't answer Jesus' question. Jesus' question was, do you agapao me? Do you love me unconditionally? Do you love me ultimately? And instead of just saying, yes, Jesus, you know that I love you, what Peter says is, yes, Jesus, you know that I love you like a brother. Jesus asked him again, do you agapao me? 
Peter says, yes, Jesus, you know, I love you like a brother. Jesus is right in that place where Peter is in this great struggle. And I think Peter, the reason that Peter didn't say, of course, Jesus, I'll go follow you, baby. That would have been the normal foot-in-the-mouth kind of Peter response, wouldn't it? The normal arrogant Peter response, of course, man, I love you more than these. More than these dudes do. That, that, was, that, was, that was the Peter we knew until this moment. And Peter could not bring himself to accept the challenge that Jesus had just brought to him. Peter could not say the words. And I think it was still because he was stuck in his shame. He was locked. He was trapped in this dungeon of shame. And see, Jesus was coming in to set him free. To break that hold on Peter. But to do that, Jesus had to go where Peter was. And that's why the, set, the third time that Jesus asked this question, Peter, do you love me? He doesn't say, Peter, do you love me ultimately unconditionally. He takes the word Peter used. And he says, Peter, do you phileo me? That's the third question. Jesus takes the answer that Peter had given him, and now he asks him, Peter, do you phileo me? Jesus dropped his scale down to be where Peter was because Peter could not come to where Jesus was. Friends, that's always true of us. We cannot come to where Jesus is in perfect holiness, in perfect wisdom, in perfect understanding. Jesus always has to come to where we are. That's the picture of the gospel. That was him leaving his kingdom and glory, coming, taking on flesh. Because we could not make our way to heaven without him. He had to come. He had to show us. And so he did that. He took on flesh. And in this moment, and when he comes to you to restore you, he is not going to wait on you to get it perfectly right. He's going to come to where you are. And he says to Peter, Peter, do you phileo me? And now, Peter, I believe, is at the end of his arrogance rope. He's at the end of that arrogance rope. He's stepping into life in the kingdom of God. You know, Jesus, in the greatest sermon ever preached, said that the meek will inherit the earth, that the humble will, will, will in, inherit the earth. And Peter is now stepping in that direction for the first time. This is this first kind of humbleness in Peter. Peter's not going to be arrogant and say, absolutely, Jesus, I'm going to agapao you. He humbly says, the best that I know that I can do right now is just say, Jesus, I love you like a brother. I love you like a brother, Jesus. And Jesus receives that. And Jesus takes that. And Jesus begins to build on that. See, that, that third question broke Peter. Did you notice that? Verse 17 tells us, he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you phileo me? And it says Peter was grieved at this third question. Third question was different. It wasn't the same question. It looks the same in our English Bible, but it wasn't the same question. And it broke Peter. It took him to a point of sorrow. He was grieved. But friends, it was godly sorrow. 
There's a difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Godly sorrow always leads to repentance that leads to restoration. Always. Peter was on that journey into restoration now. He, he was at that point where Jesus could begin to rebuild something beautiful out of the implosion of his life. He could begin to take this rubble. See, the love of Jesus had shattered all of that shame and brought godly sorrow into Peter's life. See, with Jesus, it is okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. It's okay not to be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way, which is why when Jesus brings restoration, he always reveals a better way of life. And Jesus does this in this moment in verse 18 and 19. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, Peter, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Now, some of us look at that and think, well, that's pretty crappy news. That is just not good news, Jesus. That doesn't sound like good news. But then the Bible interprets this here for us. And it says... Jesus said this to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. Peter, in that moment, came to understand that in his death he would be glorifying God. And Jesus finishes this part out by saying, Peter, follow me. That was the first invitation that Jesus had ever given to Peter. And he was pointing out to Peter, Peter, it's possible for even you to follow me. Peter, in your death, you're going to have followed me so passionately and so deeply and so richly that even in your death, you are going to bring great glory to God. See, Jesus knew this all along. Jesus wasn't asking the do you love me question because he didn't know the answer to it. Jesus knew the answer. When Jesus asks you that question, Jesus knows the answer. What Jesus needed for Peter to understand was that he does love Jesus. That he does love Jesus. There are places deep down inside of you, Peter, that I know that you love me. And I'm going to show you a better vision for your life that God has for you. This is you, man. Even in your death, you're going to bring great glory to God. See, Jesus wants to reveal that kind of vision for your life. That you can follow him no matter how much you have failed. No matter how far away from Jesus you have walked. If you have turned your back on him and kind of gone back to your old way of life. Jesus will meet you right there. He will show you a better plan for your life than you could ever ask or imagine. Because he loves you. Out of that great moment of restoration... God launched Peter. Many of you know that Peter was used by God to speak on the day of Pentecost, and the church was born. The church was born on that day. It's an incredible moment in the life of the apostle Peter and the church. And then in Peter's closing of his first letter to Christians who were being horribly persecuted, both of the letters that Peter wrote were to Christians that were suffering terribly. He begins to close out his letter with these words. It's not going to come up on the screen. You may want to write it down. First Peter chapter 5 verse 10 says this. 
in his kindness, God called you to share in his eternal glory by means of Jesus Christ so that after you have suffered a little while, he will restore, support, and strengthen you. And he will place you on a firm foundation. Friends, that's the message of hope. When, when you're at that point where you feel like you're locked in shame and despair and your life has imploded and there is nothing but rubble and there's nothing that good that can come out of it, Jesus shows up there. And his word to us is that he will restore and he will support and he will strengthen you. Yes, Jesus loves you. I want us to close with a word of prayer. And then I want us to close in a worshipful declaration together. Let's pray. Father God, we come at this moment grateful, oh God, that your love pursues us. Grateful, oh God, that your love restores us. Grateful, God, that your love supports us. Grateful, Jesus, for you. Grateful that you ask those kinds of questions that dig deep into our souls. Do we love you? Do I love you? And you know our hearts already. And you just want us to know that you are building the capacity in us to love you more fully, more passionately, that you have a better vision for our lives than we could even begin to imagine. And you are here with us right now to unlock us from our captivity of shame, to unlock us from that place where we have fallen, to lift us up out of that, to meet us right where we are, to take us to someplace so much better. And so we come. We come in this moment to say we love you. And maybe, maybe you're here today. I don't know everybody here. Maybe you're here today and for the very first time you want to tell Jesus that you love him. And you want to do it in such a way that what you mean by that is you're saying, Jesus, I want, I want to experience the fullness of your love. I want you to come into my life. I love you that much. I want, I want you to forgive me of my sin. I believe that your death on the cross paid the penalty for my sin and that when you were raised from death, you conquered death for me that I could live eternally with you. Jesus, I love you. I turn from everything else that would keep me from you. Jesus, I love you. Maybe that's your prayer today. Most of us, we've stood in that moment. But the world, our own flesh, and the father of lies have beaten us down. Ty talked to our grads about our identity. Maybe your identity in Christ has been distorted by your own sin or by the sins of others. And right now you're confused. But you know that you love Jesus. That's enough. You can just cry out to him, Jesus, I love you. He'll receive it. 
as you're turning back to him. And so in these moments, we stand and we sing. We declare, not just with our words, but with our hearts. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.